Hey everybody, this is Ruben, and you're listening to Amazing Stories. I often walk around Vinegar Hill in Brooklyn, known for a hundred and more years as Irish Town. Well-off folk used to come across from Manhattan to draw and paint the picturesque Irish in their natural, as they thought, setting. Tumble-down cottages with pigs rooting through the garbage and so on. The brownstone we live in for many years belonged to the diocese and was home to generations of young Irish religious women who taught at the school next door. A bound across the East River takes you to Manhattan, On its west side is another ghost of the Titanic, the rusted girders of all that remains of the White Star Line Pier, the destination never reached by the 1,500 souls who the great ship failed. It's all Bike Path and Hudson River Park now, but in the time the play is set, October of 1912, It would have been a bustling, clattering place as ship after ship pulled in after a run across the Atlantic, filling its custom sheds and warehouses. Named a river, the Hudson is actually a fjord, an arm of the sea, and when there's fog, as there often is, the opposite shore is thickly veiled, as it appears is also the truth about the sinking The water runs fast, fast, heading towards Lower Manhattan and Wall Street, skirting Governor's Island, watchful and brooding where the East River joins it, on to Red Hook where my heroine Emma is with the reporter Danny Malloy and a man who claims to know why the ship really sank, drowning Emma's fiancé six months before. She's cold and a little scared, but determined. Maybe she shivers and pulls closer to Malloy as she looks out to the water, to the narrows, and beyond them to the rockaways, and then to the open, furious, forbidding Atlantic whence she came. McBride, who worked on the plans for the ship, has just told her he's scared of everyone and everything connected with the Titanic. Does she still want to go ahead? He waits for her answer. Who did you raise your concerns with? Who didn't I? I was a very unpopular man back in East Belfast. Not just with the bosses. The fitters and riveters had it in for me to call off the project. There goes all that overtime. There was pressure to keep going? My windows were put in by a brick, if that's pressure. My kiddies harassed in the street. But you worked on those actual drawings of the keel plate. I had no choice. It was that or get handed my cards. That they blackmailed you? Not so much black as a dirty grey. I got the message. Tell me about your brother. They called it the guarantee crew. They were to travel on the boat to finish up the work that hadn't been done in the yard. Time had run out, but the White Star Line told the papers they'd launched by a certain date and they were sticking to it. You knew it wasn't safe. You told your brother. I argued with him until I was blue in the face. Tried to talk the big Egypt out of it. But he got tarred by my brush. Didn't think he dare say no or they'd fire him too. Then there'd have been two of us on the stones with the money going out and none coming in. He had family. 
four boys. You? Three girls. The Atlantic's the worst stretch of water in the world. Especially the route the liners have to take to make money. I sat up with him till three in the morning the day he shipped out, trying to get him to see sense. Sure, he said, there was radio on board and they'll never be out of touch if they need help. And off they went, with the bands playing and the flags waving. On the top decks, they're eating and drinking and having a final carry-on, the lords and ladies and the big men with the money, and underneath, down below, my brother and the others are making sure the damn thing doesn't split apart. But it does. And it didn't need an iceberg to do it. Just needed me and one rogue wave. You can't put it all on your own shoulders. If I'd argued more, fought harder, walked off the job... They'd have filled your place and it still would have gone down. But I signed it off. Don't you see that? That's my name on the drawings. So, you kissed goodbye to Belfast. You came here instead. What's with that? I couldn't face his wife and his kids. Couldn't face my own kids. What kind of man was I? Did I deserve the name of one? Mm. I know why yon wee girl is hooked on this. But what's your interest in it, Mr. Malloy? Is it just a payday? <laughs> you want the honest truth? That ship was built by a shipyard whose proud boast is that it never employed a Roman Catholic. Never will. It's built by a bunch of hard-nosed Scotch-Irish Protestants who'd skin a flea for sixpence, as my old man used to say. Now, they got their noses bloodied pretty good when they drowned most of their passengers with the whole world looking on. They like it to be known as an act of God, with whom they claim to be on first-name terms. But if it was an act of man, and a criminal one at that... I'm one of those hard-nosed Scots-Irish... But you're minus a brother. And you're better placed than anyone to make whoever killed him and the others pay. I've said my piece. I've told you what I know. I'm away on now. Watch yourself, Flower. Ask the wrong questions, and you'll risk a hatchet in the head. Are we school? It's a nice wee school. It's made of bricks and mortar. The only thing that's wrong with it... McBride's rhyme back there, our wee school. My mother said it often and in bitterness, not nostalgia. When her father, the shipfitter Jack Lytle, died of a work injury, his six kids had to go on charity. Getting free meals at school, they were made to sit at the back of the class, away from the stoves, foundered. She never forgave or forgot. I think I put a bit of that bitter steel into McBride's character. And if that's how the firm treated those who worked for it, why would they bother over much about their passengers' lives? I've been reading up on the Titans. Even for Greek gods, they were bad news. They were famous for their cruelty and treachery. One of them killed his own father by cutting off his private parts. They started a ten-year war. The other gods finally rebelled against them. They imprisoned them, put them in the power, and get this, of the king of storms and the ruler of the seas. 
Naming a ship after the Titans is plain asking for trouble. What is it that you're pretending you want out of this, Miss Hinton? Justice? Pretending? Justice might be too big a thing to ask, I know that. I don't think somebody like me can change things, not really, but I'd settle for the truth. They told us that it was true that the Titanic couldn't sink. Science and engineering and technology would see to that. The world had shrunk. Nature took orders from us now. When that ship turned into a heap of useless metal rusting on the seabed, it shook us to our core. So maybe you don't want justice or truth. You want a belief to live by, a faith to replace the one you lost when you lost your fiancé. I'm not sure a lady should talk like that to anyone in this situation. I'm a city desk editor, not a lady. She needs somebody to blame, a narrative that might be true or might not. She doesn't really care as long as she has some purpose in her life. Will you publish? On wreck a career I had to fight for every inch of the way? Bankrupt this newspaper in a libel suit? If everything you print is a fact... Then the harder they'll hit back. Mr. Malloy, I shall require you to leave us. You'll require what? I'd like to speak to your friend alone. <laughs> I'm not his friend. I'm somebody he's desperate to get a handout from and a new start for his career. Get the hell with you. The hell with you bringing me a story I can't use. Have you any idea? No offense, Miss Hinton. The number of crackpots and confidence tricksters and grifters who walk in here every day. Please leave. Not without you. You're working for me. He's doing what? The retainer you had me pay you. Is oh. he taking money from you? He said it was routine if he was going to work on the story. Yeah, that's not exactly what I... You know the word for a man who takes money from a woman. You take that back. Enough. Please. Danny. Please leave. All right, I'm leaving. But this is my byline. Remember that, Swanson. It's my story. <sighs> I would like to let this go. It is walking with the dead. I talk to those who also walk with the dead, and I see the same thing in their eyes. I see it in yours. Tell me that I'm wrong, and I'll go. I'll try to do this without you, but if there is any way you can help, even if you have proof that there is nothing to be proved... Two years ago, I met someone in Europe, in Venice, in the Basilica. Our eyes met, and a mountain fell on top of us. That one look was enough. When we dug ourselves out, we came to an understanding. It would be difficult. I have a family. It would mean losing my position here, one that it has taken me many years and a whole lot of hard work to reach. Mr. Hurst is a great believer in the holy state of matrimony, publicly. For others, 
And if you are going to break the conventions, then do it in the conventional way, discreetly. My... My lover's coming to New York was by the Titanic. I am so sorry. I stood on the Hudson Piers for three days without eating or sleeping, waiting for news. I still can't go anywhere near the river without being overwhelmed with it all again. Doesn't that... Put me exactly where you are. Determined to get to the truth and make sure the world knows it? Come over to the window. You can just about make out the top of the Brooklyn Bridge from here. See it? The flag? The tower? Like part of some great Gothic cathedral. A cathedral built by a race of giants. See the cables... That mighty swoop across the water, holding the entire thing up. It was a boondoggle. Start to finish. A way for the crooks in City Hall to plunder the citizens. Halfway to completion, the engineer realized that one of their swindles was to spin the cables, not out of steel, as contracted, but to substitute Iron wire. Most of it already pitted with rust. It was too late to tear it down and start over, so they left it there. Every time I go over that bridge, I keep my fingers tightly crossed. If such a scandal in New York City could be covered up, what are the hopes of exposing this one, if there is one, when the evidence is at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. Perhaps we should let the dead be, Miss Hinton, and allow those who love them to sleep in peace. I can't do that, and neither can you. Can you? In that safe is a very different story of your fiancé's last moments. It says that the men on board that ship did not put on evening dress and politely hand the women and children to the boats. There was panic and fear, rage, pushing, blows, kicks, generations of good breeding turned to monsters. And the answer to your question as to what the band was playing has different answers because they did not play. That story is an invention because men of flesh and blood with all their lives before them would not be so foolish as to sit there and fiddle and tootle away as others fought to get into the lifeboats. That's why you didn't publish. Mr. Hurst forbade it. I didn't argue. After all, we had ennobled those who died by making them figures in a tragedy. Not beasts fighting in a cage. To have to have admitted anything like the truth. How could we have built a new century, the modern age, on that? Nobility was a better story. 
Hogwash, though it was. The selfless nobility of the band being the most ridiculous thing of all. But to rub the readers' faces, the families of the survivors' faces in the dirt... It would have been honest. Who wants that? You don't. You still want to believe the cables that hold that bridge up are made of shining new steel. Now you know they're half-rusted through. There might have been courage and strength and decency there. Yes. A ship's officer tried to keep order by shooting into the air. That's the popular version. The truth, I have a statement in that safe, is that he and others used their guns to force the passengers out of the lifeboats. They took their places. Shame stopped the mouths of those who survived. Where does that fit in with the official story, the narrative we want to believe in? Could it deal with my anger at my lover? Anger? Why didn't she also fight hard enough to get off the ship, to get into a lifeboat by any means, any means at all? She? The woman I loved enough to leave my family for, to throw over everything, including my job. Surely if she'd really loved me, she'd have done it. Somehow. You tell yourself that, too? In the middle of the night, yes. As I think you do about your fiancé. Yes. I have indeed walked with the dead, you see. I, too, have looked for someone to blame. Opened myself to fantastical ideas, ideas about wealthy and powerful and, yes, dangerous men. Do you know who J.P. Morgan is? I have heard the name, but... All I... you need to know about the U.S. is that Carnegie owns the steel, Vanderbilt the railroads, Hearst the news, Rockefeller the oil, and J.P. Morgan the banks. And everything else... They're all in each other's pockets when they're not trying to cut each other's throats. Morgan has so much loose change that he personally bailed out the U.S. economy a few years ago. He is a maniacal collector. One thing he collects is books. His library is on Madison Avenue. It's as if he has set himself to possess everything that was ever set in print. Say he wanted this book. He would make me a fair offer for it. If I said no, he would offer a premium price. If I still said no, if I said, Mr. Morgan, you will not have this book, I believe he would beggar me or have me killed for it. His hand would, of course, be nowhere near the murder weapon. He has many enemies. Two of them... John Jacob Astor and Jacob Guggenheim traveled on the Titanic at his personal invitation and died. Others, his allies, Henry Clay Frick and Alfred Vanderbilt among them, canceled at the last moment as if they had been warned. What weight should I give to the fact that the White Star Line is owned by a company owned by Morgan, which means he owned the Titanic itself? J.P. Morgan owned the Titanic? If the maiden voyage was meant to showcase the Marconi Company's ship-to-shore telegraph system, why did the inventor, Mr. Marconi himself, cancel his stateroom at the last moment? 
Why did it take so long to broadcast a Mayday signal? Why was the signal sent that all was well, no one was injured, and the ship was proceeding to New York? A signal that meant that the ships which received it turned around instead of helping with the search for survivors. How many speculators on Wall Street and the City of London made a fortune as the stocks in the companies involved swung this way and that? You have proof of that. And so much more, but how much time do you have? How much more lost do you want to be when everything you learn leads you deeper and deeper into what? Confusion? Madness? An alternative world where each fact may in itself be true, but the totality of facts becomes a fiction. Can you heal this way? Or will it make the wound deeper, the pain endless? If I found a way to publish, all it would be doing is piling more words on top of those hundreds of thousands already written about it. It wouldn't bring us justice. Don't we have to try? Morgan and his cronies live in a world of event and action, not mere words. Don't words have their own power? Surely working here... I used to think they did. Now I know that that is a belief they allow us to have so they can proceed to plunder us unhindered. When the presses roll, you can feel their vibrations here. That is all the effect they have in the real world. That is the truth of it. My advice to you is go back to England. Try to get back to your life. Uh, no. No. I won't. I can't. I make a point of being in the print room when the edition starts to come off the press. I'll be gone around 10, 15 minutes. Please excuse me. I do not expect you to be here when I return. I've based the character of the editor on the career of the legendary investigative reporter Nellie Bly, born Elizabeth Cochran, from a family of Kennedys and Murphys and Cochrans. Her reputation was made when she allowed herself to be confined in a madhouse on Blackwell Island, opposite where the United Nations building now stands. The walls remain. Inside them, horrors were done, which Nellie exposed. She was one of the first female journalists to cover the First World War and went round the world in 80 days, giving Jules Verne a title as well as an idea for his novel. A formidable woman, but also one who knows just how far she dare go. Before leaving the office, she placed the key to the safe on her desk. Emma hesitates, then picks up the key. She crosses quickly to the safe, opens it, takes out a file filled with papers, glances at them. Her heart quickens. Swanson seems to have the goods. Letters, statements, someone's diary, all to do in some way with the Titanic. The room seems filled with the noise of the presses. In some way, the whole world is filled with the sound of them even today, turning out volume after volume, not just in English, but in 
Swedish, German, Polish, French, Spanish, and wait for it, Flemish. The inky tide of speculation started flowing almost before the ship settled on the sea floor, as did the questions. How close were the links between those who financed it, built it, owned it, insured it? Was there an invisible intelligence which decided who lived, who died, who sailed, who were warned off? Morgan, Frick, Clay, Vanderbilt. The names mean nothing to Emma, but she takes what she finds, closes the safe, sets the key back on the desk. Malloy, the newspaper man, will know those names and know how to shine light on their doings. Swanson's warning sits on her, though. What tunnel is she about to enter? What might she find coiled there in wait for her? She hesitates at the threshold. The darkness is indifferent to whether she enters it or not. She could still back away, take the boat home, put her questions on the shelf, leave the puzzle pieces where they are. You never get all the answers, sure. Why not just walk away? So much of life's a bewilderment in the end. Instead... I still need to know. I have to know. In episode two of Ghosts of the Titanic by Ron Hutchinson, Emma was played by Genevieve Gaunt and Danny Malloy by John Hopkins, Flora Swanson by Lizzie McInerney and William McBride, Fergal McElheron. The narrator was Ron Hutchinson. Music was by Steve Edis and sound design Joe Pdelbrill. Ghosts of the Titanic was directed by Owen O'Callaghan and it was a Big Fish radio production for Radio Ulster. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to join us tomorrow for yet another amazing story.